Good. My name is Matthew. If you're brand new to North Langley, I'm glad you're here. Uh, maybe you're on a, a new journey with Jesus, and maybe it's been a long time since you've been in church, but we are glad that you're back. And we hope that as you journey with Jesus, that you will find that he is the great giver of life and love, and, uh, and we're happy to continue to follow him today as we begin a new series, this series Loved, as we explore uh, what it means to to think about uh, identity, sexuality, and gender when it comes to Jesus. Now, I am excited tonight about our 5 p.m. service, and uh, there are many of you here, so I'm a little worried about how many people are coming tonight to the 5 p.m. service, but if some of you wanna do double duty just so it doesn't look like an empty room tonight, that would be appreciated, so thank you. Um, <clears throat> Anyway, um, I don't know if you, as, we, as, as those words are on the screen, identity, sexuality, and gender, um, I know that, that if you're like me, I've been in multiple uh, moments where there has just been a tension in the room when we think about those three words. Um, I don't know if you've been at like a Thanksgiving meal or, you know, yeah, so some kind of family dinner or you're talking to a colleague or you're talking to a friend and all of a sudden the two of you realize you're on different pages with some of these things and there is a tension and we're walking on eggshells and things become a little bit more hushed and there's just like this, um, this tension. So I, I'm gonna share a story with you and I hope it's okay to share this story uh, to start off our series. But uh, a couple years ago, my mom bought me a plane ticket to fly uh, down to New Mexico, to Santa Fe, New Mexico. My dad, Brad, Brad the dad, is a painter, and he uh, was having a one-man show. All of his work is in a gallery in Santa Fe, and so uh, he was having a one-man show on a Saturday, and so my mom was like, Matthew, come down and experience this. This is a big day for your dad, and so I was like, awesome. So I flew down uh, by myself, and I hung out with my mom and dad, and I was so excited for my dad. He, he had sold a bunch of paintings, and, um, and there were all these art gallery workers, um, the owner of the gallery and a bunch of uh, these amazing like art connoisseurs, and they're just like super trendy uh, art gallery folk. And so uh, they were like, well, because Brad sold all these paintings, let's go out for dinner tonight. Let's celebrate uh, this great day. And so they invited all of us as a Price family out to dinner to a sushi restaurant. So if you can picture the table, on one end of the table, there's a bunch of art gallery workers. And, um, and then on the other end of the table were, was the Price family. So I'm sitting next to my dad, between my dad and my mom. And and my dad is at one at the head of the table, and the, uh, one of the head art gallery guys was at the head of the other end of the table. So there we are, we're eating sushi, and one end of the table is having a little too much to drink, and uh, things are getting quite loose. And at one point in the dinner, uh, one, of the, one of the art gallery workers uh, knows that my dad's a pastor. Like, they know he, he's a painter, but they also know that he's been a pastor. And they're like, Brad, you're a pastor. Brad, what do you think of gay people? He said, of course, Charlie here, Charlie's gay, right, Charlie? And my mom is gay. So Brad, what do you think of gay people? And at that moment, I thought my life was over. Like, I, I literally thought, okay, like the earth could just like open and I could fall into it and it'd be better than what's about to happen right now. Because uh, as I watched those words fly in the air to land upon my father, my dad is not only a pastor, not only a missionary, but my dad is Southern Baptist. So uh, right to the right to the right of most things in the world. And so I saw those words land with him and I thought, oh no, I cannot help this situation at all. I'm gonna have to wait to see what comes out of my father's lips. I'd love to interject and fix this, but I can't. So feeling like it was an eternity, my dad kind of chuckles and goes, hmm. 
Well, you know, I've been on a journey on that one. And I was like, hmm? (laughs) I had my own little moment with my father. I'm like, really? And then I watched those words sail back over to the art gallery of folk. And there was a pause. And then he lifts his glass and goes, great answer, Brad. All of us are on a journey as well. Cheers to a journey. And everyone's cheering to a journey. I was like, oh, he did it. He said the right words to get out of that cul-de-sac, dead end. Anyway, I, I, but I also often feel like that's kind of the way things are, right? Like, it's just like we have to say the perfect thing to get out of an awkward moment. And, and you know, we're ex- we experience that kind of panic, again, in the workplace, at family dinners. And my, my hope is that we here at the church would not experience that tension in the air as we talk about identity, sexuality, and gender. Let's just talk about it and talk about it in a spirit of love. The truth is we are all on a journey. We have all had to think through this. We've all had to process what it means to be sexual beings, to be gendered humans. We're asking questions about what it means to be me. What does it mean to have an identity? And above all, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, apprentice to Jesus, we wanna know what he thinks. We wanna know what Jesus thinks. We're all on a journey. But the question really is, who are we on the journey with? Or I could ask it this way, who is forming us on the journey? Because every time you and I ask some kind of question about identity, sexuality, or gender, we got that from somewhere, like we got that answer from somewhere. We were told something and we thought about it and we go, yeah, I think that's true. You see, we're being shaped by someone or something and we're always being formed So again, on this journey, when it comes to identity, sexuality, and gender, who is forming you? Leslie Newbegin, the late British missionary theologian, he says it this way, if the biblical story does not control our thinking, then we will be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. If the biblical story does not control our thinking, then we'll be swept into the story the world tells about itself. And I've geared this eight-week series towards those of us who are interested in the biblical story. I'm interested in what Jesus thinks, and I would assume you are too. That's why you're here. We as a church want to be apprenticed to Jesus, and we want him to shape our minds and our hearts and our lives. I don't want to be swept into some story that the world's telling about itself. I want to be swept into the story that Jesus is telling, and he's telling a story about your life and my life. In his story, I find out who I am, and I wanna know what he thinks about identity, sexuality, and gender. So, let's begin our series with the Apostle John, who writes about our our identity as the beloved children of God. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter three. If you don't have your Bible, I'll have it here on the screen. 1 John three, one to three. See, What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So this is the word of the Lord. 
see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. And that is what we are. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us this identity as your children. We are grateful that you're here, Holy Spirit, that you're moving in the room. And we would pray that you, Spirit of God, would be the one who would shape us in the coming weeks. We don't want to be shaped by anything else. We want to be shaped by you. So come, Holy Spirit. Guide us to the heart of the Father. Lord, I lift up my friends in the room, part of the LGBTQ community. Maybe there's some high school kids or kids in middle school or in college who have yet to talk about some of the things they're feeling deep in themselves and are wondering if this is a safe place to talk about it. God, I pray that you would just give a spirit of grace to our church, a real sense of um, love for one another, a sense of trust in each other. And God, would you continue to move in us? We want to be apprentice to you. Would you shape our minds and our lives? And we trust you in your name. Amen. Well, uh, my first role here at the church uh, 12 years ago is I came as the youth pastor. And for five years, I got an opportunity to be the youth pastor. And those are some amazing years. And it was my second year, I think, um, pastoring uh, the youth in the high school um, that that uh, we went on a fall retreat. We went down to Lake Whatcom in Bellingham and we were at a camp, I think it was Camp Furwood, and we were at this lodge. And so uh, during the day, one of, one, one of the youth kids, I'll call him Jack, that is not his name. Um, Jack came up to me and he was just like, hey, I, I would love to um, talk to you after tonight's session. And I was like, absolutely. And so played some games, did a session. And that night, um, as people were kind of winding down, um, I remember we were just in front of the Lake Whatcom and outside the lodge, and, and he began, he, he came to me and he just said, Matthew, I want to tell you, you're the first person I've ever told, but I'm gay. And I said, I said to him, I said, thank you so much. Um, thanks for telling me. And, and we began to process what it means for him to have these attractions, and he, his parents were Christians, and they didn't know, and, and uh, he was wondering what life would look like in his family uh, in his home and what life would look like here at the church. And so we had a great conversation. And throughout the years, I got to walk with him um, uh, through lots of ups and downs in his high school years. And as far as I know right now, he's not in church. He's not uh, following uh, God. I, I, I hope that's not true. But, but in that journey, um, I realized something really special about that um, relationship that I had with him is that he trusted me with so much in that moment. And I want to keep that moment and, and over a dozen others like it in my life, I want to keep those in mind in this series. In the last number of years, I've had the honor of being invited to hear people's stories. And this series, this is about real people with real faces and real stories who are walking through a real confusion. When, when they look inside and notice the attractions or orientations and desires that upon a first read of the Bible, they read the Bible and they're like, ah, there's just you know, they, they don't fit together, and, and what do I do in my life? And if you're part of the LGBTQ community and you're interested in, in Jesus, um, I would love to share Jesus' posture towards you. Hundreds of years before Jesus lived, there was a prophet named Isaiah, and he spoke of the coming of a servant 
And we see that that's Jesus. And he says this, he writes this. He says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he'll not snuff out. He loves you. And and, and Jesus, he he takes bruised reeds. You know, those reeds, they're bruised. They're just one little bit of pressure would break them. He's not gonna break it. He's gonna care for you smoldering wick, a candle's wick, you know, right there on the edge, ready to go out, ready to go dark, seconds from being extinguished. He, the servant, Jesus, will not blow you out. Jesus is gentle. He's not here to crush us. He's here to pour his love into our life. Now, I hope you all know that our church is practicing being good at loving all people. And one of the things that we have to do as we practice this is to offer clarity. Clarity. Because I think when we're clear about things, um, it's, it's, a, it's an act of love. Um, clarity about where our church lands on issues of identity, sexuality, and gender. And so I just really want this to feel like we're experiencing a clarity. Um, I, uh, when 9-11 happened, I was 21 and I was living in the dorms at Trinity. And uh, I remember waking up, as we all remember, most of us in the room remember what that day was like. And a friend of mine named Chris and I were really struggling. We didn't know a lot about Islam. We didn't know a lot about what Muslims were like, and we didn't know much about the Quran. And so some of you might be here today, you might be Muslim, or your family might be Muslim. And so we didn't know a lot about Muslims. And so we thought, okay, we went into the yellow pages, and we were like, let's find the closest mosque. And so we went there. So my friend Chris and I, we were 21, we drove to a mosque in Surrey, and we kind of knocked on the door, and there was an imam there who was like really nice and really friendly, and he was just great, and he welcomed us in. He answered all of our questions, because we're like puzzled, right? It's September, you know, uh, 2001, and we're just, we're kind of going, what is going on? What are you guys all about? And we must have encountered the most hippie imam on the planet, because he kept saying, Allah is like the flowers of the field. Allah is like the, the trees in the forest, and Allah is like the birds in the air, which was awesome, and, uh, and we had a great conversation. But one thing I did is I, I left going, huh, like that was interesting, and then I'm watching the news, and I'm seeing these planes hit these towers, and I'm like, what? Are these two things the same thing? Like, it feels like there's a canyon, like just a massive hole in between, and um, are there... Is there anywhere in the middle, <laughs> right? Is there, is it, can I make sense of this? Because these things don't make sense. And I often wonder if the LGBTQ community feels that about Christians. Like, I hear you saying you love me, and I hear you saying we're welcome, but I also look on the media and I see some things that are written about the LGBTQ community, and I'm like, it feels like there's a big hole in between. Like, which one are the followers of Jesus, and how do those things go together? And, and, and that must be frustrating. Like, what do you actually believe? Like, thank you that you want to love me. Thank you that you want to welcome me here to church. All are welcome. I get it. But what do you actually believe? I'm an adult, and I can take it. In December, Alyssa Garrison, writing for Flair, spoke about her own journey with an evangelical church in Ontario that was not clear about their teachings. As a member of the queer community, she wanted to know where the church stood, but the church remained vague in its teachings on sexuality. She was part of the church for a number of years before she found out that they held a traditional slash biblical understanding 
of marriage. And it, it didn't come out in a series like this that we're doing, like an eight-week series. It came out like as an offhand comment from a guest speaker. And she was shocked. And she was like, whoa, is this what the church that I've been a member of uh, believes? And she was frustrated with how the church had hid the teaching under kind of a vague love. And so she writes this. She says, looking back over a year later, my issue is not with church and religion in general, nor with some higher power. My issue is with the lack of transparency, the policies that are only revealed behind closed doors, the unspoken judgments and strategically vague statements. That's an interesting term, strategically vague statements, all hiding behind catchy pop songs and well-produced video clips. In a world where Kanye West champions the resurgence of Christianity with his Sunday services, it's easy to commit to quote-unquote cool churches, but it's more important than ever to clarify values before making it official. And what she's saying to her queer community is like, you need to like do some research when you join a church and actually ask them hard questions about what they believe. Because this whole we love you and you're welcome here is not going to cut it. And I agree. I agree with her. My hope is that North Langley, we can be a place where the silence is over. We can break that silence. We can talk openly about Jesus and identity and sexuality and gender in a loving way. I want our church to be transparent about where we stand. And I don't want any kind of bait and switch thing happening here. And by the way, I'm excited about our life groups. Like, this is a really unfair thing at church. You know, I've got a microphone and you're listening, so that's not good. That's not much of a conversation. So the idea is is that in our life groups, we're going to be having these rich conversations. I met yesterday uh, with Pastor Tim and the life group leaders, and they are excited about the kind of conversations that we're going to have throughout the next eight weeks. Um, We would love for you to join a life group, and there's a a course called Life Together if you'd like to join it. Um, That's how we join life groups here and so you can check uh, that out but these conversations are going to be so important these circles that we're going to gather in throughout the week midweek um, as we talk about this I hope that you have the freedom to just say hmm I'm not so sure about what Matthew said on Sunday (laughs) I'm not so sure I agree let's dive into the scriptures that for some of us we're able to be open and vulnerable to actually pray for each other and a big word here for our life groups is that we listen to each other that we listen. So let's dive in, and, um, and I want to begin by saying we have all been affected by a massive shift in sexuality. We've all been affected by a massive shift in sexuality. Some, you know, would go back a couple hundred years and say it started then. Others would say, you know, it started in the 60s with the sexual revolution. But either way, there has been a massive shift. And our secular age is an age where I would like to argue two things happened. Sex became king, and attractions became identities. Sex became king, and attractions became identities. So number one, sex became king. Let's unpack this. Sex, it is a good thing. It is a good gift from a good God for a good world. Listen to the book of Genesis and the creation of Adam and Eve. A man leaves his father and mother and is united, that's sex, to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So in the, first, in the second chapter of the Bible, we see God's heart, that man and woman would be one flesh. God makes a good thing. Sex is a good gift from a good God. But it was never meant to be an ultimate thing. In the language of Tim Keller, good things becoming ultimate things become idols in our life, and sex became king. Here's a lie that we've come to believe, that sex and romance are core to our identity and we will not survive without a flourishing sex life. 
Now, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think every one of us in the room believes that. Now, I think there's probably a few outliers. Um, some of you, maybe not. But I'd say in the 90% of people in this room, we believe sex and romance, if on a rainy day, quiet moment, we would actually go, yeah, I think that's true. Sex and romance are core to our identity, and we will not survive without a flourishing sex life. C.S. Lewis, in 1963, in the final piece that he ever wrote, um, he talks about the influence of a strong erotic passion in our culture. And what's interesting about Lewis is, other than a brief couple years, he was single most of his life. And he, he writes this, it is part of the nature of a strong erotic passion that makes more towering promises than any other emotion. No doubt all of our desires make promises, but not so impressively. To be in love involves the almost irresistible conviction that one will go on being in love until one dies and that possession of the beloved will confer not merely frequent ecstasies, but settled, fruitful, deep-rooted, lifelong happiness. Hence, all seems to be at stake. If we miss this chance, we will have lived in vain. At the very thought of such a doom, we sink into fathomless depths of self-pity. How true, right? Lewis is on to something here. If we miss this chance, we will have lived in vain. Lewis is describing the overwhelming pressure that all of us feel to find our identity and meaning in sex and romance. Now, what I want to do here is cue the throwing the notebook movie under the bus. So that's what I'm going to do for a second. Now, I just want, uh, if you are married here and your husband and your wife is sitting next to you, feel free to just kind of hold her back from rushing the stage and punching me in the face. So, The Notebook. I don't love this movie. And, um, no, you know, Noah and Allie, is, by the way, spoiler alert, but you don't need to see it anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Noah and Allie, they love each other, they spend this amazing summer together, but then they're forced to separate. Noah tries to reach Allie with love letters that she never receives, and they're separated by war. But 14 years later, Allie, finds Noah again. And even though she's engaged to a guy, by the way, he is a good guy. Remember the movie? He's like a decent chap. He's great. But her lover is back in town, and she and her lover, Noah, spend two amazing days together. Two. Uno, dos, for my Latino friends. Two days. She's engaged to a great guy, but she spends two days with him. She's swept off her feet with his romantic uh, feelings. And she's making a bad decision, right? Like, you're breaking an engagement with a guy with this romantic surge of emotion. Like, if Ali was your friend, honestly, if Ali was your friend, would you ever recommend this decision to her? Absolutely not. Thank you. No. Thank you. Good. <laughs> And that came from a female voice, just so you know. <laughs> Absolutely not. We've been enchanted by the lie that sex and romance are ultimate, so we like dumb movies like this. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have to say, I did not have to say that part. <laughs> sex and romance are core to your identity, and you will not survive without a flourishing sex life. That's the lie. From hamburger commercials to deodorant commercials, from Elvis to Taylor Swift, from Casablanca to Annie Hall, to the notebook. You need sex, and you will not be complete without it. And this belief has led to a profound pain. Profound pain. Karl Barth, it's a name that maybe some of you know, he was probably one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. 
Uh, he lived a decades-long affair with his personal assistant, Charlotte von Kirschbaum. I don't know if you know that about him, but man, he was influential in Europe in the 20th century, like massively influential for so much good. But he had this ongoing romance with his personal assistant. Karl Barth's wife, Nellie, knew of the affair. And her heart was broken for years. It caused her so much pain. And Christianity Today writes that Bart not only admitted to his wife his love for Charlotte, but also insisted that Charlotte move into the family home to help him with his workload. Boo. See, here's, here is what's weird. Karl Barth, this is what makes it really weird. Um, Karl Barth was such a powerful theologian who reacted strongly in his writings against 19th century liberal theology. There was a strong subjectivism in, in part of 19th century liberal theology that said, if I feel something strongly, that must be God's will. How do I discern God's will? Well, if I feel something really strongly. It's all about feelings, but Karl Barth saw that feelings and this has nothing to do with sexuality. He's, he saw that feelings, these strong emotional feelings were leading Germans into a dangerous patriotism, love of country, love of flag. And they were swept into this emotional love for their country. So he was adamant. He says, that's not how Christians work. Like you don't trust your feelings in that way. Only the revelation of the truth of Jesus in the scriptures are what matter. Like that, that's it. This is where we find our truth in the revelation of Jesus through the scriptures. So Christianity Today continues. They write this, but it's that very subjectivism that Bart fell into himself, more or less saying that his relationship with von Kirschbaum felt so good, so right, it had to come from God. And this is, this is a letter, this is an excerpt of a letter that he wrote to Charlotte. He says, it cannot just be the devil's work he wrote Charlotte, it must have some meaning and a right to live. I love you and do not see any chance to stop this. Here's the tension. Karl Barth, an amazing theologian, he contributed so much, yet he lives a, a hypocrisy here. As have I. I've lived that too. Sex and romance in Karl Barth's life were becoming king, and it led to profound pain in Nellie's life. How many of us in the room, man, if just God knows all your stories, he knows where you've been, but how many of us have been caught in the pain of sex becoming king? Some of us in the room feel empty because God has not come through in giving us a flourishing sex life. And for some in the room who work that through in their single life, um, it's led to pain, but for some who are married, you would say, the same goes with me. I am not experiencing that intimacy in my life. Some of us have felt a profound pain when the person we loved left for someone else. Some of us have caused a, a massive amount of pain as we've journeyed into pornography, adultery, or emotional affairs. I believe our secular age is an age when two things happened. Sex became king and attractions became identities. Attractions became identities. Let's unpack that. I've always been suspicious of I am statements. They carry a lot of weight. Now, they're not all bad. They're just, they carry some weight with them. So I am Canadian. I am American. 
I am fat, I am successful, I am an alcoholic, I am stupid, I am a Mennonite, I am an athlete. I threw that Mennonite one in there for a couple of you. <laughs> Hope you like it, a little gift. Each of these I am statements carry their own series of complexity, don't they? Like when we say that, we're saying a lot. They are not necessarily bad, but they, they, they carry a power to shape us. If I keep saying that I'm stupid, that, that, that actually forms me. And identity is incredibly important. The identity that, most, that is most important is how God sees me. I'm a child of God, so let's, let's work this through. In 2013, Jason Collins, an NBA athlete, came out as gay uh, on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And the BBC writes the following. They say, U.S. basketball player Jason Collins has come out as gay, the first active male athlete in a major American professional team sport to do so. He declared his sexuality in an article for Sports Illustrated, announcing, I'm a 34-year-old NBA center, I'm black, and I'm gay. So President Barack Obama, NBA star Kobe Bryant, and sportswear company Nike were among those expressing public support. Now, about Kobe. Kobe tweets the following message when Jason came out. He says, don't suffocate who you are because of the ignorance of others. And, and he's, he's being helpful to his friend. He says, like, for so long, you were suffocated and you just couldn't be who you are. But now, be who you are in the public realm. Don't suffocate who you are. Now, I just want to say, I'm not trying to throw this story under the bus at all. I'm really interested in this. Like, I'm like, okay, that's interesting to me. Who you are. I want to think about that for a little bit. So philosophical question, how do I know who I am? How do I know that? Like, how do I come to know who I am really? Well, if I'm following the logic here, in this way of thinking, you come to know who you are by what you feel. So our desires and attractions tell us who we are. So then I become a passive recipient to the desires that are within me. I want to let you know, Christian history, we have a long history of listening to what God says about us. So you are loved, you're my child, you're holy, you're forgiven. But with the sexual shift that's taken place, our desires and our attractions tell us who we are. Now, right, just so you know, just so you hear me, I'm not just saying all bad, all bad here. I'm just saying, let's, let's walk carefully. Let's think about this. Let's be thinking people here. So I think to myself, what I am feeling must be who I am. I feel this so strongly. We've, uh, I've recently been involved in a bit of a minor crisis uh, surrounding polyamory. Polyamory. The word polyamory just means multiple loves. Uh, it's different than polygamy. Polygamy is multiple marriages, multiple covenants of marriage, but polyamory is multiple loves. So somebody says, hey, listen, I'm married. Um, let's say I would say I'm married to Tanya, but I have fallen in love with someone else and maybe a third person, maybe a fourth person. I am someone who can love multiple people. Polyamory. And uh, we say, okay, well, if this is the strong impulse within you to, to love multiple people, then we come up with an identity language. I am polyamorous. I'm polyamorous. And if I have an issue with that, say, well, I don't, I think you're hurting Tanya by being polyamorous. Then the response is, well, actually, this is my identity. Like, I didn't choose to be this way. I just have 
affection for multiple people. I am polyamorous. Now, what's really interesting about the scriptures is we don't find identities that way. If I am falling in love with another person and pursuing a relationship with another woman, the Bible cares about action, and they have a word for it. The biblical writers call it adultery. So now we have a bit of a clash. (laughs) Am I polyamorous and free to love multiple people and pursue romantic interests because it's my identity? Or is it adultery? Which is it? The scriptures don't speak of identities in that way. We don't read about people identifying as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, intergender, two-spirit, asexual, polyamorous, and so on. When we come to Jesus and to the scriptures, attractions don't seem to be identities. Now, I just want to say, this is not picking on the LGBTQ community. We all deal with this. We all struggle with this. Identities rooted in parenting, identities in our work, identities in our children, in our marriage, in our nationalism, in our conservatism, in our progressivism, in our athletics, in being a smart student, in being Canadian, in being successful, in being popular, in being an influencer, in being pretty, or in being wealthy. None of these are ultimate. We all struggle with taking our loves and desires and attractions and going, hey, these are good gifts from God, but we have made them core. We have made them our identities. And I believe that Jesus, who is the wisest teacher that has ever walked the face of the planet, when we look at him, Jesus is suspicious of desires and attractions. If you're interested in seeing what he would think about desire and attraction, just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He, Jesus is suspicious when it comes to attraction and desire because he knows about the fall. The fall. Genesis 1 and 2, beautiful moment. God creates the world, creates it good. It's amazing. But in chapter 3, we see the coming of sin into the picture. That sin enters the picture. And it's like at that point, creation is just, it's broken. It's like there's a stain upon creation. There's something off. There's like, a, there's like a bug that has infected the machine, as it were. There's a virus at work. It's sin, and it's, it's called the doctrine of the fall. And if we are following Jesus, here's a big question. Are we humble enough to admit that maybe the fall has affected my desires? That maybe the fall has stained my attractions so that I cannot trust them than maybe, maybe the way I once could have prior to the fall. Now, that's not to say, and please don't hear me saying, that all attractions and desires are wrong. Please no, not at all. It just means that as I follow Jesus, I submit all my attractions and desires to Jesus, and I just say, okay, Jesus, I'm feeling some strong things, really strong things deep within me, and I just bring them before you, and I just go, Jesus, could you help me? Like, show me how to live. I bring them before you. I want to be honest enough to know that the fall has corrupted deep places within me, so I just bring them to you, and I just go, like, how should I live? And as we hold that question before Jesus, as we offer our life before Jesus, he fills us and pours his identity upon us. And this is it. And I've shared a a list just like it before, but listen to this. John 1, I am God's child. 
John 15, I am Christ's friend. 1 Corinthians 6, I belong to God. Ephesians 1, I am a saint. Ephesians 1 again, I am the adopted child of God. Colossians 2, I am complete in Christ. Romans 8, I am free. Colossians 3, I'm hidden with Christ in God. Philippians 3, I am a citizen of heaven. John 15, I am a branch of the true vine. 1 Corinthians 3, I am God's temple. Ephesians 2, I am God's workmanship. For 2,000 years, the church has not looked inward to discover our true self and our true identity. Here's what we've done. Our posture is looking upward and outward to God to receive our true identity as children of God. And I just want to pause and I want to say this. If you're here and you're gay and you're processing these same-sex attractions and everything Matthew is saying feels a little much, I want you to know it is my deep desire for the next eight weeks that we as a church would be a safe place to talk about this stuff openly and honestly, to, to, to process this, to know that we are loved, to be open to one another. For you in these groups, I think I said this earlier, to be able to say, I'm not so sure I agree with Matthew. Like, like I'd love this life group or this circle of people. To, I'd love to process this with you guys. I want us to begin to question the world's narrative that says my attraction is my identity. And as we do, as we follow Jesus, here's where I think we're going. I believe that we'll see that sex is not king, that attractions are not identities. As we listen to the first of the Ten Commandments, we see this, you shall have no other gods before me. See, Jesus is, is the only one who sits upon the throne of our lives. Could it be that sex and romance have become idols in my life? As Leslie Newbegin says, if the biblical story does not control our thinking, we will be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. Could you listen again to the heart of God? See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God, and that is what we are. And North Langley, I just want to say, this whole series, I want it to be about intimacy with God. I do. I want the whole thing to be about intimacy with God because when the truth of God begins to make me and shape me, I know we'll find the intimacy we were created for. David Bennett, um, a gay activist uh, from Australia, he discovers Jesus. He, he gives his life to Jesus in a pub and some girl prays for him and uh, he gives his life to Jesus and he goes on this six-year journey um, uh, discovering more about Jesus and about the, the sexual ethic that Jesus has. And it, it's, a, it's a book called A War of Loves. I would, I would love, uh, if we could put that on the screen, A War of Loves, um, I would love for you to see uh, or to read this book. If you're going to read one book during the series, it's called A War of Loves. would love for you to read it. But he writes this about intimacy. He says, our deepest longing was to be spiritually intimate with God. He's talking about the gay community he was part of. He says, our deepest longing was to be spiritually intimate with God, to experience the belonging we were made for. And many people in the church, I realized, didn't even have a real practical category for this belief. At least they didn't act like they did. So look what he's saying. He's saying like, we wanted transcendence. We wanted intimacy. We wanted love. That's what we were trying to find uh, in our gay community. And when we, when we looked at the church, they said that they had a relationship with God. But did they actually? Were they actually experiencing intimacy with God? Let me ask you that. Would you be able to say, yeah, I'm experiencing a rich, deep, intimate relationship with God, with the Father? Do we have something to offer the world? 
See, this is all about a journey towards intimacy, each of us to know that intimacy of a relationship with God. And by the way, I just want to say, I don't look at culture and shake my fist at culture in some way. No, I have actually a lot of compassion for culture as I see when God is kind of moved out of the picture and our society becomes more secular, where do you expect people to find transcendence? In sex. Like, like if God has been moved out of the picture, I still have a yearning for worship. I have a yearning for transcendence. I have a yearning for love and for intimacy. Of course, sex took the place of God in a, in a secular culture. Of course, because we are worshipers. It's what we are. All humans are worshiping beings. And so we need to show some grace here and say, I believe as God comes into the picture in the life of an apprentice of Jesus, we begin, it all clicks together as we begin to see who we're made to worship and that intimacy is found in Jesus and can be experienced in worship and can be experienced in prayer and can be experienced in community with one another in beautiful spiritual friendships in the church. And we're gonna talk more about that in the coming weeks, about spiritual friendships. See, intimacy is total self-giving in love. And intimacy does not require sex. Intimacy does not require me to label myself in a certain way. Intimacy is when Jesus hung on the cross, totally naked, giving his life for the sake of the world, pouring out his blood for the sake of the world, offering everything he was to you offering all that he was to you. And with his arms outstretched, he's saying, come, come and know me. Come and know my life. I love you, come. And that message is for all people, that we would know the intimacy of the love of the Father. So could we be open? I just hope that we'll stay open. Could you trust the eight-week process? Let's keep coming together. Let's not give up meeting together. As John Stott, the late great British theologian said, he said, if we come to scripture with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it an echo of our own thoughts and never the thunderclap of God's, then indeed he will not speak to us and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Man, the Spirit is ready to speak to us. He's ready to speak to us. We've been praying about this. He's ready to turn Matthew's life upside down. He's ready to turn our lives upside down. He's ready to pour his love into this place. And so I want to end with Isaiah 42. This is Jesus' posture towards each of us. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's not in the business of breaking bruised reeds. He is just not in the business of snuffing out smoldering wicks. He's gentle, and for all those of you who've given your lives to him, you are children of God, and he just brings his children to himself. Children who are confused, who are marginalized, children who are angry, children in this room who are unreasonably judgmental, children who've been hurt by the sexual shift, children that are addicted today, children that are frustrated with his sexual ethic, children who feel like they're bruised and their light is dimming. He's gentle. He's gentle. So may you find rest in the coming weeks, weeks as we explore together the heart of Jesus for his people. Could we stand together? As we stand together, I want us to pray, and I'm gonna put a scripture on the screen. 
And it's Romans 12. Paul writes this. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I would invite you, if you're willing, to close your eyes and to hold out your hands before Jesus. And in those hands that you would, you would see your whole life, your whole body, all your expectations about sex and all your thoughts about identity and questions about gender and your own feeling of lack and all everything you think about intimacy, would you just hold it before the Lord? Offer your body. And Jesus, we, we hold out our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is hard to do, but Lord, we trust you with our bodies. We trust you with our minds. And we pray that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we know that only happens as you pour your love into our life. Come Holy Spirit, transform your people. We love you. And in the hard things and in the difficult passages and in the complexity of all of this, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Amen.